We are in our third Sunday morning sermon in our series in the book of Joshua, and we'll be here for some time. The way I want to approach this text this morning is by making a really big deal, probably not a big enough deal, but I shall try, to make a big deal of the grace of God. That's the distinctive. That really is the differentiator between our confession of Christianity versus any other faith structure or organizing narrative in the world is the notion, is the concept of grace and surprising grace. Now, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where because of your own foolishness, your own failure, your own tendency to err, you're just in a bad place. It may be compounded by the fact that there are all kinds of environmental, uh, societal, cultural, familial, communal, whatever other factors that have been pressing you in and you find yourself just face and hands going, ah, I'm stuck. I just need a reset. I, I, I just, I, I, I can't fix this. I'm stuck. You would give anything for a reset. You would give anything to be able with your life, whether again, financial issues or relational issues or health issues or whatever it might be to just be able to control alt delete. And for those of you who are younger than me, uh, you have no idea what those words mean. It's okay. It's kind of like force quit. It's sort of like a, just a reset. I mean, yeah, it's a very Ask someone who's wearing glasses and they'll tell you what those words mean. Maybe you've been stuck and what you really need is grace, surprising grace. Today, we're gonna read about a wonderful story and a character in scripture that wasn't even expecting, wasn't looking for grace, but got it in spades. I want to start a little bit differently since we are in the book of Joshua. I want to stop, however, and pause and go to the very first paragraph of the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of Matthew, and it directs and connects perfectly with what we want to talk about this morning. So we're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, just the first six verses. Matthew is establishing the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then Matthew calls this Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham, in that order, even though it's not the right order. Matthew is writing to try to tell the people of Israel that this Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, that this Jesus is the rightful heir of the tribe of Judah, because it is the Davidic king that will be the executor and the bringer of all the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. It's got to come through a Davidic king. And so Matthew's going, it's Jesus. He's the son of David the son of Abraham. He's going to be the one that does it all. And then we get this sort of genealogy, this heritage. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. <laughs> I'm sorry, what now? Tamar. Well, you know, uh, a Canaanite woman who dresses up like a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law. Amen. That's a weird, weird thing to put in the genealogy of Jesus. And yet it happens and scripture doesn't shy away from it. So you got a Gentile, a Canaanite, a pagan who by disgusting deceptions finds herself in the genealogy. 
And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, hmm, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Well, here we go. Another Canaanite, a Gentile, a pagan with false gods, and she is, as the Dutch Puritans used to say, she was a woman of ill repute. And she's in the genealogy of Jesus. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, a Moabitess, another Gentile woman of questionable repute. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She doesn't even get named. She's a Hittite. She's a Gentile. So we've got four Gentile women in the genealogy of Jesus, none of whom were looking for particularly the grace of God. It is a surprising grace until finally we have Mary, mother of Jesus, and she, by all means, is Jewish. Each of these women come into their encounter with the program of God, and they are given different ideas, different um, visuals into what God's going to do through the deliverer. Tamar trusts that God is going to provide a Messiah through the line of Judah. Rahab trusts that God will provide a conqueror and sees God provide the promise of land through Joshua in her own day. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. Ruth ultimately trusts that God is redeemer. She sees that in her own husband, Boaz. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, she trusts that God will provide a king and sees God provide the ultimate king through the line of David. And of course, then there's Mary. She ultimately trusts that God will provide the son, Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. God's grace goes all the way to the ends and extents of man's depravity and error. And that's very good news because many of us, if not all of us, our spiritual gift is actually digging very deep holes for our souls. And so we need the gospel to come along and to reset our souls for us. So despite all of our depravity, all of our departure from the path that God intends, God's grace always breaks through and accomplishes his purpose for his people, peace and blessing. And so our big idea for this morning's message will be in Joshua chapter two. Our big idea is sin is no match for God's grace, even yours. And that's very good news. Sin is no match for God's grace. The moral of these women's stories that I've already read through is that morals don't save a single soul ever, ever, ever. It's always grace. It's surprising grace. And so we this morning get to come to a passage and be confounded all over again. We've been set free from all the sin, all the error, all the failure of our lives by the grace of a loving and a sovereign God. So with all that, please turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. This is our third sermon in our series through the book of Joshua. I'm so thankful last week that Nathan Atkinson, one of our deacons, uh, led through the second half of Joshua chapter one. I, he mentioned this a little bit, but I should tell you, uh, while we were going through some family health issues, Nathan texted and said, hey, uh, I think I'm gonna preach for you on Sunday. And I said, oh, that's cute, that's sweet. That, no, that, no, 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 you're not. And besides, have you read the passage? It's weird, you should pray about that. He responded back immediately, have read it, have been praying about it. This is what God wants to say through the passage. And so then I just wept uncontrollably and said, I'm not getting in between Jesus and a deacon. Like that's, that, that's, that's, that's a tight space and I don't fit in there. So I relented and yielded and I'm so thankful to see how the Lord spoke 
to Nathan and through Nathan as he led us through the second half of Joshua 1. And as a quick reminder, Moses has died. The leader of the people of Israel is buried in the valley below Mount Nebo in what is today Jordan. Joshua is the leader. Moses is dead. God's come to Joshua and said, I want you to take these people across the Jordan. And he's gone through and he's assembled all the captains, all the leaders, all the the different tribal heads. And he said, rouse the people. In three days, we're going over. Hop in the truck, y'all. We're crossing the drink. Let's go. Now, what you expect, if you know ancient literature at all, what you expect is chapter three. It's just a flow right into what they actually do. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next week. But right in the middle, you have chapter two, and it shouldn't be. Chapter one should go right through to chapter three. In fact, you could take chapter two out completely, and you'd never miss anything of the story, except that in chapter six, you're going to find out more about this. But it just sort of flows. Why does God do this? Why does Joshua include this? Because what the text is telling us is massive. We said this a couple weeks ago, Old Testament narratives are a declaration about God by God. I want you to hear that again. Old Testament narratives are a declaration by God about God. And so we're going to pause the war narrative to tell us something very particular. And it's important for all of us to be reminded. God is a sovereign God of power, might, grandeur, and glory. And he also more shockingly than that claim is that he knows individual people and their individual circumstance and stink. It's an amazing story. So we have Joshua chapter two. Now I will warn you in advance for those of you who like myself are a little bit OCD, this is going to wrinkle a feather or three. It's okay, there's grace for that too. In ancient literature, when you want to emphasize something, you don't do it like we do. Today in the 20th century, the 21st century, if you want to emphasize something, you put it at the very beginning of a paragraph or you use a textual trick like bold, italics, underline, highlighting, smiley face emoji, whatever you want to do. They didn't do that in Hebrew. In Hebrew, you put the most important thing in the middle. And so Joshua chapter two is really sort of built like a sandwich. I know I shouldn't be talking about sandwiches before lunch. Stick with me. You've got verses one through seven that is the top layer of bread and some lettuce and some fixings. And then you got verses eh, 15 to 24 that are the second half of the sandwich down below. But in the middle, eight to 14, that's the meat of the sandwich. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna start with one through seven and then we're gonna skip down to 15 to 24 and then we're gonna go eight to 14 and it's gonna freak some of you out. It's okay, we can do it this way. Besides, Hebrews right to left, we're going left to right, so we're already cheating. Okay, here we go. Joshua chapter two, beginning in verse one. And Joshua, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Ephraim, I might add, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. It's always fun to be a pastor and get to read words like that in church. (sighs) What Joshua has just had a conversation with God about was cross over, take the land, it's conquest. It's not a settlement, it's Yahweh's land. Moses in Deuteronomy will talk about the cities, the cities, the cities over and over again. But in the book of Joshua, it's the land. Make no mistake, the land is Yahweh's. It's not just a displacement. It's not what we kind of try to connect it to our day and time. It's not a trail of tears thing. No, it is Yahweh's land. And those who were living there were defiling it. 
with horrible, heinous atrocities, crimes against humanity, with their child sacrifices and other disgusting things. It is Yahweh's land. God says, Joshua, take these people over in three days. We're taking it. Now, what you expect is Joshua to take the people across the river. But no, 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 no. Joshua sends in two spies. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies. It's always a good idea to leave a place called Shittim. That literally means the acacias. It's the, uh, the acacia trees. It's the plural thereof. And so what that means, it's, a, it's an area of wilderness. It's, it's the hinterlands, the badlands, the, the outskirts. Uh, it's not good. And so they leave from there. You might remember that some 40 years earlier, there were 12 spies that set out and they went out and scouted the land and 10 came back and said, we can't do it. Effectively, our God's just not big enough or he's not interested enough or he's not paying attention or he really doesn't love us this much. We can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb said, we can take them. We can take them. Let's go. We have God. This time, Joshua's learned an important lesson. I'm just sending two. We don't know who they are, but he's prepped them and coached them adequately. He sends these two and they go. Go, view the land, especially Jericho. Now, let me just point out, it's not that God needs some intel, some reconnaissance, like, hmm, God's going, hey, Joshua, help me remember, where's the door? Oh, no, 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 see, God doesn't need help. God's got a specific personal plan in mind. I don't even know that Joshua fully understands it. He might, we don't know. Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a, oh, come on. They went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Well, there's a lot going on. This thing seems to hang in the balance the way a lot of God's missions do, huh? You think about the coming of Christ and little 7.2 pound pink baby Jesus is laid in a horse trough, utterly vulnerable and defenseless. And if that little fella gets colic, well, it's all over. That's how God works though. You see, God has a plan. God has promised the children of Israel, I'm giving you the land and offspring and blessing. Now go across the river and there's two spies who are supposed to scout this out and they go in and they go to a house of a prostitute. Ah, come on guys. Could you not want... Well, what's going on? For starters, there's not like there's any Marriott's or Hilton's or Holiday Inn's back then. This was kind of what you do. You lodge there. It's also a decent way for guys who were wanting to travel secretly to sort of slip in and out. Not a whole lot of questions, not a whole lot of observations. So it's fairly common. But they do go into the house of a woman named Rahab, and she's a prostitute. Now, for 2,000 years, the church has tried to sort of sanitize her a little bit, say, well, maybe she was just an innkeeper. Maybe she's like a B, like an airbnb or maybe, maybe something like that. No, she's Zanach. That's a wordy dirt. She's a prostitute. It's even likely that she could have been a temple cultic prostitute, which would include even more egregious, disgusting, despicable acts. We don't know anything else about her, but you get the sense that her life is not what she wanted it to be when she was a little girl. She's got an entire extended family, and yet she's supporting the entire extended family with this work of prostitution. You just feel like all the bad decisions and all the circumstances have led her to just have her face in her hands 
all the time. And not only that, her name is Rahab. It's really weird. I've been to a lot, a lot, a lot of labor and delivery units. I've never seen a little Rahab be born. You just never get that. Rahab and Gomer, those are just stricken from the list these days. Rahab, by the time of Joshua, was already a famous name. Rahab's already mythical and legendary. Job writes about the expression Rahab. Rahab in the book of Job and other ancient literature is a placeholder for Egypt, that great, powerful, insolent, rebellious, proud nation would be called Rahab. Her name, Rahab, means proud, insolent, and arrogant. The book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah talk about Rahab being a, a sea monster. So let me make sure you're catching up. The nation of Israel is 12 miles from Jericho on the other side of the Jordan. Two spies go in and they go into the house of a prostitute named Loch Ness Monster. <laughs> like, do you see this, this? This whole thing is about to just fall apart, right? Oh, but wait, the, the tension rises even higher. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Now, the text is very careful to tell you they slept there. They did not engage in any other form of activity. They lodged. They slept there. So the text is telling us this, this mission travels on the edge of a knife very precariously, but they just lodged there. Verse 2, and it was told the king of Jericho. <laughs> That's funny. They're spies. And right away, the king's like, oh, I heard there's two spies that just walked in. They're the worst spies ever. And then they go right to the prostitute's house. Like, what were they wearing? Big capes with stars of David on them? Well, no, because there's no David yet. But pretty obviously, these guys are not good at what they're doing. And it's found out by the king. It also tells you that the security in Jericho is very, very tight. Listen, they know who Israel is, as we'll find out in a moment. And the king is made aware that this prostitute is housing two foreigners. And so what does he do? was told the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent, Rahab, sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men. That's a, not, not, not like that. Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now, the king of Jericho, the, the term king is melech. It's a word for king. He's more like a mayor. It's a city-state. It's not like he's got a vast empire. Don't think Camelot here. It's a city-state. But he does have control and command of all of the military and all of law enforcement. He could have just gone and kicked in her door and uh, ransacked the place and found them. But she's apparently got some influence, and he's apparently a pretty good politician, wheeler-dealer. And so he just asks for these two guys to be brought out. Verse four, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Okay, Joshua two, four. This is a biblical basis for lying to the police. <laughs> no, it's not. And we wanna be really careful to not try to port our morality 3,500 years in the past to a pagan Canaanite prostitute. Deception is deception. But what is even more sacrosanct, what is even more inviolable is the ancient Near Eastern custom of hospitality. If you did not show appropriate hospitality, even to your enemies, that was a capital offense. Of all people in the Bible, of all people, Abraham's nephew Lot, who was a knuckle-dragon doofus, he makes it into Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith. And why? Because he showed hospitality to the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
not because he was a particularly you know, fluent guy in the scriptures, but because he shows hospitality to the angels, he makes it in the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. Hospitality is a really big deal to our God. How we interact and entertain one another cares. And so yes, she is deceitful. No, that is not a license for you to do such. But there's a bigger point that's going on here. She says, yeah, I, I, they were here, but then they came in, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And this is classic Keystone Cop misdirection. Go get him, go get him, follow him, follow him. They went that away. And here come all the, you know, the Jericho cops. And they run off and they go south and east. We find out later. They go down towards the Jordan, south and east. Well, we'll find out in a moment. She's gonna send the two spies north and west. So that's brilliant tactician on her part. Verse six, but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Oh, that's a fascinating little detail. Stalks of flax. Well, flax is very, very useful stuff. It's a crop and you lay it out in order to dry and then you peel back the fibers of the flax and then you take the flax seed oil and you lubricate the strands and you make rope. Just wonder why would she need rope? Hmm. And apparently her extended family was also involved in agriculture. She was doing some other things. They were doing agriculture. So the men pursued after them the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So the Jericho cops take off at a mad dash. They go south and east to the Jordan River. These guys are now sealed up inside the city. The plot thickens even more. Now we've got some higher tension. <sighs> Sandwich time. Stop there. Let's go forward now to verse 15. Now we're going to get the other half of the sandwich. Then she, Rahab, let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. Eh, it's she lived in the wall of the wall. All right? So in Jericho, big fortified citadel city, they were very proud of their defenses. They thought they were impregnable. There's a big, huge outer wall, and there's a 15-foot-wide dead space, just a void, and then another wall. So you had wall, space, wall. And inside that void, they would usually just pile all of their trash, dirt, and rubble to try to make it even thicker and more strong. But the residents, I mean, it's not easy to scratch out a living, and so they would literally scratch out a life. They would get in there, and they would claw out, and they would make their home in that dead void space between the two walls. This is not the best part of town, okay? They're living between the two walls in the dirt and the rubble and the mess, and yet she somehow managed to also scratch out a window. <laughs> Not a very safe and you know, supported wall, but nobody seemed to mind or care. Verse uh, 16, and she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. So she tells them to go northwest. You can stand in Jericho to this very day. You can look about a half a mile north and west and you will see these limestone cliffs and they rise up off the, the plains of Moab about 1,500 feet and they're just full of limestone caves. These guys could have hidden in there forever and so they do and they wait three days. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. We'll circle back to that in a moment. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window uh, through which you let us down. 
And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Which again, I just want to say, she said this entire extended family household, her mom, her dad, her brothers, all of her nephews and nieces, and ew, 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 because she's a prostitute. Ugh. But this is just, uh, this is the Canaanite culture back then. And this is in Yahweh's land. You will all be saved. Now, they did not get let out the window on this scarlet cord. That comes a little bit later right here. And we want to be careful and not too hasty to try to connect this to the cross of Christ and the blood of redemption. That's not what's going on here. Not yet. This is an intentional and an immediate callback to Passover. Where Passover, you had to act by faith and believe that when this 10th plague was going to happen in Egypt, you had to have the blood of the spotless lamb painted over the lentil, the doorpost of your house, so that judgment would pass by. It's the same idea. So this cord is going to be like a Passover lamb's blood. Now, does that prefigure in some sense then the cross of Christ later? Yes, it does. But let's not make too quick of a connection there. This is a reference and a callback immediately to Passover. God took care of his people then. God takes care of his people now. Verse 19, then if anyone goes out into the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I love that. You almost wonder, is she really going to go through this? Is she going to like mark herself out? No, she does it because she believes. And so she acts. Her behavior is a projection of what she believes. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now we have to go to verse eight. What's amazing is these two spies come back and they give the report the 12 spies should have given 40 years ago. And not only that, they say their hearts melt away because of us. It's so beautiful. It's so symmetrical. That is exactly what God tells Moses that the people will say when they move in. Moses, the people's hearts will melt away before you. Go get it. And the spies didn't believe. They didn't trust God. They didn't think that God was who God said he was. Now we've had the bread on either side, carbo-loading. Now we go protein. Joshua chapter two. Let's start with verse eight. Before the two spies who've now come into Chateau de Rahab, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Uh-oh, is she gonna gut them? Is she gonna poison them? Is she gonna blow the whistle? What's gonna happen here? And said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. That was unexpected. Have I mentioned she's a Canaanite Gentile prostitute? There's some sense. The text doesn't say it explicitly her life would have been horrible, super hard, super heinous. You get the sense that she's just, this is, this is it. But she's begun to hear about this people who has this God who does things. And so she comes up and she gives the first confession, really, in the book of who God is. I know that the Lord has given you this land. 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. I mean, she's quoting Yahweh, y'all. That's pretty good. She's heard about these people, but not just that. Listen to what she's heard. Verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt, you know, up out of Rahab. Now that's pretty good. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Oh, we've heard this. Can I remind you, the Red Sea is 40 years old by this point. And the people of Jericho keep talking about the faithfulness of this God. The people of Jericho keep telling the stories of the faithfulness of this God. The people of Jericho, the Canaanites, the pagans, the Gentiles keep telling the story of the faithfulness of this God. Unfortunately, sometimes it's the people of God who forget the faithfulness of God. For 40 years, they've been saying the Red Sea was parted and, and they came through. And, and then the, the armies of Egypt, of Rahab, were utterly destroyed by this God. You don't mess with Egypt. They did. See, they were telling the story of the most massive Omega moment of the Old Testament. That Israel, whom God calls my son, comes through death and into life and they enter into prosperity, bounty, and blessing. That's the Old Testament. Israel, God's own son, goes through death into life and they enter into blessing. And these Canaanites keep telling the story. Yes, it's a perfect prefiguring of the Omega moment of the New Testament. That Israel, Jesus, the true son of God, comes through death into life and he ushers his people into life and prosperity and abundance. They kept telling the stories. We've heard about you. You came up out of Egypt. You were in the wilderness and you weren't lost. We've heard you. We've seen you. At night, you are million strong. We see your lights. We hear your singing. We know you're out there. When are you going to come and kill us? We know what happened to Sihon. You were going to pass through his land in the southern part to the east of the Jordan. And you said, we're just going to pass through. We're not going to take your stuff. We're not going to even pick grapes. We're just going to walk through. But Sihon, the king said, no, you shall not pass and it worked out about for him the same way. He draws his sword. Israel devotes everything, and she says, uses a Hebrew expression to harem, holy destruction. Everything that has breath in Sion's kingdom is wiped out. Man, woman, child, beast, hummingbird, amoeba, gone. Well, they keep marching forth, and they encounter a guy named Og, king of Bashan. Og, on his business card, it says, fat king over the hill. Bad bad idea to put that. That's how he's known. I'm Og, the fat king over the hill. He gets slaughtered and butchered and his kingdom gets utterly eradicated as well. Harem. It's Yahweh's land. And these people in Jericho, they saw what happened to Sihon. They saw what happened to Og. By the way, they know what happened to the Red Sea and they talked about it for 40 years. There's been a lot of talk recent years, archaeologically, biblically of, hey, did the Red Sea thing really happen? There's no evidence. And by the way, it could have been the Reed Sea, which means they just walked through an ankle deep swamp. Can I just tell you something? Canaanites don't talk about Jews walking through a swamp for 40 years. Those people then absolutely believe that the children of Israel literally went through the Red Sea as though on dry ground and that the entire army of Egypt was eliminated. They believed it then. Very fresh, very recent. So that's instructive. She knows who these people are. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Hmm, is God going to get this done or is God going to get this done? 
And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God. Boom, Joshua 2.11. You've got a Canaanite, Gentile, pagan prostitute, and she gives the good confession. She uses the covenant-keeping name of God. Now, she's already said to these spies, you've shown me chesed, loving kindness. Keep good on that. I have shown you chesed, loving kindness. We've demonstrated that that comes from Yahweh. And I declare that he is God. For your Lord, Yahweh, is God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, by Yahweh, that I, as I have dealt kindly with you, that's chesed, loving kindness, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This woman had no way out, but this is the surprise of grace. She had no way out. Her sin, even somehow, this Canaanite pagan woman, God's law was written on her hearts, her face in her hands. God knew precisely who she was and she got grace. See, sin is no match for God's grace. Even in the midst of God's massive macro program and purpose, he still cares about a person. And that's very good news. So let me just give us three very quick implications on this. And we'll apply Joshua chapter 2 to our lives, I hope. Sin is no match for God's grace. First point could go like this very simply. Trusting God to be faithful in the big picture looks like obeying him in the small picture. <laughs> we trust God, we trust God, we trust God. In the meantime, I'm gonna do whatever I want. That, no, that, that's, that's what I do. That's the wrong way. That's the fallen way. That doesn't work. Rahab didn't just say she believed. She acted as though she actually believed and her actions were a projection of that she believed. It's a great time for us to be reminded and to be reflective again as we're into this fall season now of what God has done in Christ. The stage was all set for there to be no way for any of us to have any chance whatsoever. And into that against all odds world, God sends these two spies to Rahab. And in this against all odds world, God sends his son Jesus in the person of Christ and utter defenselessness into a circumstance that could have scarcely been worse. See, Scripture's telling us again and again and over and over that we are not in control, but that God is working through means which we are probably not even aware. We can trust that he really is good, he really is active, and he really is involved, even if we can't see or fully appreciate it. And just to make sure we get it, God brilliantly makes one of the mothers of Jesus, one of his ancestresses, to be a Canaanite prostitute named Sea Monster and Egypt, she shows up in his genealogy. God had worked on her heart and prepared her to believe, and she heard. She heard. Faith comes by hearing. She trusted in the promise of God that God would conquer the land in which she lived. We know that she believed God by virtue of what she did. She was faithful. In fact, she's even recorded in the pages of the New Testament for her faith. James, half-brother of Jesus, writes this in James chapter 2, verse 25. 
He says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. Ah, she just can't seem to shake that title. Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 in the hall of faith says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. I don't know exactly what it looked like. We'll get there in chapter six in a few weeks. But when the walls came a tumbling down, there was one chunk of the wall that stayed standing and all the people therein survived. Rahab is called Rahab the prostitute, even in the New Testament. Why? Is a badge of shame? No. No, no, quite the opposite. You see, it's a scandal of grace. God, in his inspired word, is not ashamed of Rahab. And that's not how I often think of God. I tend to approach God like he's ashamed of me. He can't be because he's God. Now, speaking of those verses in James and Hebrews, here's how they refer to Rahab. Second point goes like this. Belief transforms our brokenness into brilliance. <laughs> this is what being in Christ does. It's interesting that a lot of the people we like to think of as the heroes of the faith, we might say, these, we think of them as these really great uh, men and women of character, even though they weren't really particularly moral people. Abraham was a liar, not once but twice, about his wife. Moses had anger issues and then, you know, was also a murderer. David was a murderer and an adulterer, and Peter got wrecked by a teenage girl. I mean, it happens to the best of us, okay? But that's not general that comes to mind when we think of them. We like to think of stories in which they acted in faith, were brave, and had conviction. But Rahab is always remind, recorded in Scripture as the prostitute. Why? Because she, though deserving to be the object of God's wrath, was transformed into a trophy of God's grace. You just see Rahab in the trophy case of heaven and God's like, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about right there. From an object of wrath to a trophy of grace, incidentally, that's also Ephesians 2. Thousands of years earlier, we have the story of Noah. He was a man of faith and the faith influenced all of his personality, his mind, his heart, and his emotion. And so we see the same thing with Rahab. Just like Noah, she creates a safe space where people can come in and she acts with all of her personality because of her belief, her mind, her heart, and her will are all engaged. Some of us have come through significant trajectories of hurt and brokenness, but our God is able to use those stories for his glory and to impart the hope of redemption into somebody else. God's not ashamed of Rahab. It's glorious. Third point that we can draw all this from, and we see it right here in the text. It goes like this. Everyone believes something about God. Everyone does. You might have friends, family members, coworkers, neighbors who are raging atheists. Great, awesome, good for them. That is a belief about God. Everyone believes something about God, and we see that evidenced in this text. Clearly, the spies believed something about God, and they were acting in obedience to his leading and to his promise. Rahab believes God is God, believes that Yahweh is God. And how did she know that? Because she saw what was happening. She heard all this and she knew there must be something to it. The Canaanites, well, they all believed something about God. They believed that he was not the true God and that all of their false gods were actually sovereign 
and that results in their destruction. Failure to recognize and receive God as God always ends in judgment. I didn't make this stuff up. That's just the history of the world. But the surprise of God's grace is that he moves and stirs in the lives of some very unusual suspects to make himself known. Everyone believes something about God, but perhaps few people have taken the time to actually think and pray and write it down. And so I'd like to invite you this week, maybe early in the week, to think through what you have heard. What are some of the Red Sea moments of your life? What do you think when you think about God? It's the most important thing about you, Tozer said. So I would challenge you to get still, get quiet, get away, and just write two or three lines down. Rahab does it in a couple sentences. Yahweh is God. He is the sovereign over the heavens and everything beneath on the earth. And he knows my name. I don't know what your confession is, but this is good for you. This is how you put pen to paper, fingers on keys, and write something down. Write a few of your lines of your confession and then like Rahab, ask God for wisdom and courage to live accordingly in the midst of whatever, what I call janky Jericho, you're gonna find yourself in. You're either about to go into a janky Jericho or you're in a janky Jericho or you're coming out of a janky Jericho. But good news, good news, janky Jericho is in all of our futures. Maybe in all of our presents and it's certainly in all of our pasts. And so your confession of who God is based on what he has done is what will give you through and build and bolster your faith. Now, just to land this plan, we've already said that sin is no match for God's grace, and that's very good news. We started off by talking about the genealogy of, Jews, of Jesus, and it includes some pretty interesting names. Nashon. Nashon is listed in the book of Numbers as a prince or a chief of Israel. He has a son named Salmon. Salmon, who somehow, by God's grace, apparently meets and marries Rahab. That floors me. She was a prostitute, a Canaan, possibly cultic temple prostitute. She's damaged goods. <laughs> but not to God. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Whatever damage you're carrying around, God is able and he is willing to restore. Whatever damage and scar you're carrying around, God is able and willing to remove. She becomes the mother of Boaz. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament, Boaz was the man. I mean, that's literally what they call him. Gibor Chayil. It's, you the man, Boaz. He's Goel. He's the kinsman redeemer. He was the man. And you know what? He has a soft spot for Canaanite, pagan, Gentile women. I wonder where he got that from his mother Rahab, who taught him well. This woman who was utterly wall trash becomes the ancestress of the Messiah. Now see, we have to think uprightly about this God. So here's the deal. You and I are like Rahab. Arrogant, insolent, prideful, enemies of God by nature. And he's not ashamed of us. He redeems, he restores 
I can be the product of my own sin and my own sinful surroundings and my tendency is to live apart from God's presence and follow my own flesh. But then I hear, like Rahab, that there is one, Yeshua, Jesus, who is coming. He's coming from the east to conquer all of my sin and all of my death and everything opposed to him. And so like Rahab had to sit there and wait for days. I have to patiently wait for him to come and have to trust in his finished work to escape the judgment that I know I actually deserve. My only safe place is in the refuge that he has created and graciously provided. This Jesus, this Messiah, this conqueror, this redeemer, this king, and this son is, is the reference the demonstration of our Jesus and all those women were bound to this Jewish man. It sounds just like the church, the bride of Christ, as we are united to this groom. So we trust him to conquer all that he says he will conquer. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this morning, for this passage, for your people, for this place. And Father, I thank you for Rahab whose name would have been an article of shame, but now a gleaming beacon of grace and redemption. And I confess, I can't wait to meet her. What's amazing is she probably can't wait to meet us because the same gospel of grace has worked in and through all of our lives. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, that is still trying to eke out and scratch out a living in the wall, as it were, would you convince them of the truth that your son Jesus is the son of God who takes away their sin and fills them with righteousness so they can live lives of purpose and meaning? For the rest of us, Father, would you continue to free us from whatever guilt and shame we might carry? We would live lives of purpose on purpose to proclaim your excellencies and to herald your grace. Thank you for the gospel, Father. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.